Hello and welcome to Chocolate Lore and Dinosaurs, a podcast brought to you by the Keel Key Fund. This week, we're joined on the podcast by three academic colleagues who will be talking about the one thing that's dominating the news, or has dominated the news for the last few weeks, the Queen. I'm Michael, and I'm joined today by Laura Healy from the University of Law, Abby Pearson from Keel University, and Laura Higson-Bliss from Keel University. Abby did just wave. Well done, Abby. Hello. Hello. I think we need to add cameras in then, don't we? <laughs> Absolutely. Let, let's add cameras into this for a podcast, which goes on to the uh, sounds only. We could do it on YouTube. We could. This could be an amazing extension of podcasts onto YouTube. However, anyway, we are talking about the Queen and not how we can use uh, videos when it comes to podcasting. So... We, uh, the way this works is we begin with a topic of conversation and then we see where it takes us uh, into the bizarre realms of our own minds. Uh, we begin with the Queen and I ask our illustrious panel, or not so illustrious panel, depending on your point of view, uh, for their reflections on Her Majesty and the uh, funeral, which was probably as long as her uh, reign itself. So, uh, Laura Healy... Reflections on the Queen. It's it's a transition, and I think a lot of people were affected by this idea that we've had something we've always known, and it's so prevalent. Every time you open your wallet, you or your purse, you sort of see that. And it was, you know, we've had a lot of instability over the last however many years, and it's just added to that sort of change that nobody really is comfortable with and the fact that we are in this situation now where what most of us have grown up with what we've been exposed to has just completely uh completely changed thank you abby well i think it's been a really strange time for all the reasons that laura said but i also think it's been a bit like losing a sort of distant family member in a really strange way I think we've all got those aunts and people who we sort of know know of, but we don't really know on a personal level. And I, I think that was a very similar feeling that came through because a lot of the communication that was with the public and you saw the drawings that children had done particularly that said things like, best queen ever. And then, of course, how everybody's grabbed on to the Paddington Bear meme and leaving the marmalade sandwiches. I think that showed quite a sort of intimate connection with what we might think of a ceremonial office, which I thought was really surprising. And I was also surprised by how sort of upset that I felt about it, because if you'd have asked me before it happened, I don't think I would have said, oh, yeah, I'm, I will be affected by that. But I was. So. And finally, Laura H.B. Yeah, it is. I think it's interesting that if we look at the last couple of weeks, I think it ties into a bigger picture about how we grieve as a whole. And, you know, you had people standing in line talking about, oh, they're remembering their grandma, their grandpa, um, loved ones that they've lost. And I think it begs that bigger question about whether we do tend to have sometimes this keep calm, carry on kind of attitude. And maybe we need to challenge that a lot more and let it be accepted that we do need time off to grieve. Um, and it is, it's terribly sad. And I think, it, again, it just sort of shows that big 
impact that she had on everyone within society, um, across the world even. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it does raise the question of how we deal with grief. And certainly we've got a a family here. And the one thing we, at the centre of all of this is we've got a a grandmother, a great-grandmother, a mother who is now no longer with her family. And they're interestingly having to deal with their grief while still doing a public role. But it has also tapped into that idea of people remembering uh, others that they've lost. And it has almost almost been this kind of legitimising of it's okay to feel grief and we can come together and feel grief, which typically we sort of keep it very private and we don't talk about it. But it does raise that question about having time off because bereavement leave, some places will be quite generous and others will will be very much, you've got a week. Um, mm -hmm, Or non-existent time. So it's very much a case of there's almost this public acceptance that, okay, it's fine to grieve and there's a structure to grieving. Um, we can go and see this person lying in state. We can go and there's a funeral on this day. There's a movement of the coffin here. And there's very much a structure to it that people then uh, did engage with. It's interesting as well that people were remembering past generations because the Queen was this connection to uh, previous generations of of our families, grandparents, great-grandparents, who were there at the beginning of her reign and were there at the point where... Um, she was born in the case of if, case of grandparents, certainly for my grandparents, they were uh, already in their teenage, early teenage years at the time she was actually born. So it's a connection as well to that uh, previous history. But it is the greatest parasocial relationship in the UK, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it is that thing to sort of pick up on what Laura and Michael were saying, is that, you know, unfortunately, most of us have experienced grief at one time or another in our lives and it's especially during covid you know there are a lot of people who were affected by that and it was almost this kind of releasing all of that at once and it was kind of a mechanism for people to actually pour out grief that they've experienced whether it was more recently or many many years ago it it kind of don't want to say legitimized it because I think grief is a legitimate feeling but it also made it acceptable that you could have this massive outpouring of grief and there was almost this central point you could focus on and nobody judged you for it or it was kind of socially acceptable to to do that and I think what struck me most is that Charles now King Charles III he's not really had any time to privately grieve you know he he's been flying all across the country he's had all these meetings the accession council was sort of two three days after uh, after his mother passed away so he's not really had time to grieve and you know the family has had to display their grief in public almost yeah and it's interesting because i think you saw that human side of him King Charles, when he had the issue with the pen and he threw it away and everyone <coughs> was able to sort of sympathise and understand that that pressure, it wasn't about the pen, let's no. be honest. I think whilst people sympathised with that, though, I think some of what we've highlighted did show some of the um, sort of, when we're talking about parasocial relationship, did highlight there were some of the differences So, for example, the fact that the pen video was published by the media and some of the media narrative, particularly 
overseas was, oh, see how spoiled he is, that he even, you know, gets upset with a pen. Whereas, as we've just said, most of us in that situation would think, oh, this pen, and it would be the last thing, and everybody would be very accommodating at Mm. that. And I think on an interpersonal level, people were. But then also, when you had people walking around for the um, walkabouts, People were kissing him or people were cheering and whooping. And that felt really incongruous to me, that he's going through his private grief, yet people are projecting their feelings and their needs onto him. And I thought that was a really interesting side to it because as uh, Laura H. Uh, Healy says, that you, um, can, you can have this mass outpouring of grief but then you've still got to think about the individual person behind that. Yeah, it humanised them, I think, a lot more, hasn't it? That they are human beings, yes, they're royalty, but ultimately they're the same as us, really. Well, the thing is, I mean, none of them asked to be born into that family, none of them asked for for this privilege, you know, it's kind of, it's an accident of heritage <laughs> almost that they've been put in that. And it was interesting what Abby was saying about people sort of cheering Charles. It's like at the same time he's lost his mother, but then people are kind of almost celebrating that. So it must be a really conflicting feeling. On the one hand, you've lost somebody, but on the other hand, we've gained a king and the transition has just been so quickly, understandably so, but it's just, it must be a very bizarre feeling that you're, you know, the person who's been your mother for so many years is no longer there and you're now <laughs> kind of at more of the forefront than you perhaps were while she was still alive. It was interesting, one of the things that, that really struck me on the day that they announced the the death of the Queen, I mean, we were all kind of sitting there going, okay, I think that we know what's coming. But it was the way that world leaders reacted and former prime ministers. And uh, I think Justin Trudeau was, I remember seeing his reaction and it was kind of very honest uh, about how you know she was his favourite person uh, in, in kind of a political spectrum. But also there was the interesting thing about John Major and he was saying, well, actually, it's brilliant to be able to go and see the Queen. She's got all of these years of experience of dealing with somebody. And you might be able to say to her, oh, I've got this problem with uh, President whatever or Prime Minister whomever. And she'll say something like, oh, I knew his father. And it's this wealth of kind of experience that goes back. And it's, it's kind of interesting to have a snapshot over the last few weeks with her passing of the way that the Prime Minister's audiences with the Queen have an impact on those individuals and give them an opportunity to be honest and open in a way that they can't be in other circumstances. Yeah, and I think that shows some of the (coughs) reassuring role as well. The very fact that you had all those world leaders coming out and saying, oh yes, she could recall back to a previous situation that was similar to the one that we're in now. That the reason why having somebody with that long view was so great and so calming because whatever came through, be it war, be it you know times of national emergency that we've seen in the pandemic, she was able to go, right, I've been in a similar situation to this before. This is how we navigated it and this is how um, I advised. And I know that Michael and I had a little chat the other day, didn't we? The idea that that machinery of succession was all there ready to go and we didn't have to think about that. Whereas if we did live in a different system, you'd have to think about elections and all the rest of it. 
And it's interesting that, that that machinery just kicks in and just takes over, and suddenly we go from uh, you know, one day, a, one moment a queen to immediately she's she's passed away, and we've, we've got a king. It doesn't matter. There's no ceremony. It's just that's how what's what happens. And then we obviously have the official uh, accession council, and then we've we've obviously had other things along the way. And it's been interesting that obviously this time, uh, the last when we had the coronation of the queen back in 1952, television was in its infancy, and this time. All of this pageantry and all of this ancient kind of heraldry and, and process has been televised. So we've been able to see what the modern versions of ceremonies that have been going back centuries and what we've got a monarchy that's about a thousand years old. So these things have been happening regularly. And it's been quite interesting to see those kind of things. And in a way, educational, because I didn't know, there's things I've learned about the Queen that I didn't know. I didn't know she read so much paperwork. I thought the Queen had tea with people. I didn't realise that she actually did administration and paperwork. So the idea that she... You never watched The Crown? No, I've never watched The Crown. Oh, there's a bit and, uh, in there and they obviously bring the paperwork and her dad told her that you always go to the bottom because that's where they hide, hide everything. Bury the bad news. Yeah, hide all the things that they don't want you to really pay attention to. But I think it was Gordon Brown uh, who said that she was actually very incredibly knowledgeable and was actually more up-to-date and more informed than he was on a particular <laughs> issue or she corrected him about something. So, you know, a lot of people do see it as a ceremonial figurehead with a, not much power, if any at all, but all the stories that have been coming out from the former prime ministers actually demonstrate that actually she is that source of guidance or, or was that source of guidance and advice. And it was a place that they could completely unburden themselves in a way they couldn't to colleagues or maybe even their spouses. And going back to the title of this podcast, I found out how much she loved chocolate. Apparently, whenever she used to uh, go anywhere, she used to take a box for herself and a box for the host. And they had a picture of her sitting, various sitting rooms in the paper, and every single sitting room had enormous boxes of chocolates in it. And to me, you like chocolate, you're an okay person. <laughs> I concur. <laughs> uh, liking chocolate does make you an okay person, in my view, anyway. So the, it's, it's kind of interesting that we, we learn these things uh, other it was worth pointing out that other royalty-based uh, shows are available. Um, <laughs> but you learn so much about what we would have seen throughout history. And it's interesting to think back to the beginning of the 20th century. Obviously, we get Queen Elizabeth II in 1952. But the generations that lived before then, um, and her first prime minister, she had 15 prime ministers, her first prime minister, Winston Churchill, had seen uh, six sovereigns in his lifetime from Queen Victoria to uh, Edward VII, George V, Edward VIII, George VI, Queen Elizabeth. So there, th there's been a... The, you know, sovereignty usually has this massive amount of change because all the people that come to the throne are very late in life or have been there for a very long time. Queen Victoria, previously the, the longest-serving monarch. So it's interesting to think about the, the, the length of time that she's been there, the number of prime ministers she's had and the, the influence she may have had subtly... And I think that it was pointed out on the day of the funeral that the, when the Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine happened, uh, when she did a photo opportunity, there were blue and yellow flowers in the background. 
So she was making very subtle points. She's known for that, isn't it? So it obviously got constitutional conventions and we're meant to not know her political stance. But there are examples that have been highlighted throughout the years where some have argued that this is her showing her political stance. So we saw it around Brexit and she wore a hat that was blue with yellow flowers on. And there were arguments that that was done on purpose to show her political opinion on it. And uh, they... There's a lot of symbolism around things that she used, particularly the handbag. So apparently yeah. if she put the handbag in a certain position, that was a silent signal of, I want to leave or take me away from this situation or whatever it might be. So I think there, there is a lot of symbolism there, which will be interesting actually, thinking about particularly hats and whatnot, is will King Charles have that same... A symbolic system or not because his obviously his fashion choice is more likely to be much more restricted so maybe are we going to see messages in his pocket squares or in something else or is that something he's going to have to find his own new way of giving out those meanings because interestingly he did say didn't he in his king's speech that I'm not going to be able to do what I have been doing previously to make my causes more important so how is he going to navigate that that means of communicating with people? A call from a friend saying that they need some help. Yeah, like maybe. you do on a bad day. I, th- I think the thing is, is that, yeah, and you know, it, it's the point to kind of make is that the monarch really they have the hardest job of all because they have to do nothing. Yeah. You know, they have to kind of almost sit back. They they can't sort of overtly put forward their their views on things and obviously he has spoken in the past particularly on environmental um, issues and obviously he can't necessarily be as outspoken as he was when he was the the Prince of Wales but I'm sure he will find ways he's obviously you know funded lots of organizations or put people in touch with relevant uh, people to, to do that but again you know he he has kind of been training <laughs> for this for, what, 70 years, 73 years. So I think he'll be able to navigate the waters. And, you know, he, he possibly, arguably, had the best tutor that there, <laughs> that there could have been. And it's that thing, isn't it, of the monarch does nothing in terms of, of political opinion, although we think you know, lots of subtlety was in there. And it'd be interesting to see what colour flat cap Prince Charles chooses, or whether he chooses to wear his favourite gardening coat, because he does go out and dig in the gardens and, and get stuck in, and, and I remember seeing he, he has a patchwork coat that's been repaired so many times, but it's so comfortable he won't throw it out, um, which is quite endearing when you see somebody in royalty wearing a coat that's pretty knackered, to be honest. Well, that's all part of that parasocial relationship, isn't it, of like, oh, he wears, you've just said, look, we've all been there, we've had a piece of clothing that we all really love and the queen loved her jogs and the queen loved a certain type of drink or food or whatever so it is going to be really interesting to see how he's going to build that and what his sort of image of king charles is going to be because obviously the queen one of the main images of the queen is the corgis and we know that he (coughs) he doesn't have a breed of dog in that way but it'll be interesting to see how he develops 
I think he's um, got uh, two Jack Russells, I think. I think he, he favours Jack Russells. I think Russell. it's two types of terrier. I can't, can't remember what it is. Terrier, yeah. Apparently he likes Labradors, though, which, which again, makes him sound like an okay <laughs> person because, quite frankly, Labradors rule. Well, if dogs like a person, that's normally a good, <laughs> a good indication of their personality. Is that kind of a qualification now for being a politician? You, dogs have to like you. Well, I don't know, because I think Downing Street paid an inordinate amount of money to do a photo shoot for the dog that, that they got or something. They have a dog? Yeah. I know about Larry. Is there now a Downing Street dog? I don't know if it's a Downing Street dog, but the funds were put towards having a, a very expensive photo shoot for a dog that belonged either to Boris or uh, somebody else in the cabinet, and they were heavily criticised for the fact that they've spent all this money on a, a dog photo shoot nothing will die in my memory quite quite as uh, you know nothing will live as long in my memory as the moment when the uh, journalist outside downing street interviewed larry the cat to ask whether he'd uh, given advice to boris johnson um, <laughs> it's such a british thing isn't it to interview the animal as it leaves yes to go okay have you have you given advice to the prime minister uh, to which the cat's response i believe was meow um so what's the administrative elements then that, that the, the monarch does? We've talked a bit about that they have the hardest job and they, they can't say anything. And not being able to say anything, most of us would, would really struggle because yeah, one thing human beings are very good at is being judgmental. Um, but what do they actually do? What's the role of the monarch? Well, we, we've got what you've probably heard um, about called a constitutional monarchy. And... What that basically means is we have a head of state who is a monarch, but the legislative power resides with Parliament. So it resides with the House of Commons, with, with the House of Lords. And the kind of big role of the monarch is that they do sign off the, the bills. So for something to become a law, the monarch has to assent to it. Now, theoretically, on paper, the monarch could refuse to give their assent. They could say, no, I don't agree with the um, online safety bill, so I'm not going to sign it into legislation. But we have this thing called constitutional conventions, which are non-legal rules of behaviour that everybody who operates mm. in the constitution is expected to adhere to. And one of those conventions is that the monarch will never refuse to give their approval for a piece of legislation. Was it 1802 the last time the monarch refused? Was it Queen Victoria and the joining of Scotland with um, England and Wales? Off the top of my head. I, I want to say, and I'm sure somebody will correct me on this, I think it was actually under Queen Anne, and I want to say it was 1707, but I'm oh. not sure if it, yeah. it might have been a bit later than that because um, I, I can't... My, my last knowledge of when the, uh, the monarch decided to, to basically say no to Parliament was when King Charles I marched out of London and decided to raise his standard at York and go to war. Obviously, that was in the mid-1600s. Of course, the, the thing that was pointed out in the, the, the links to that, that was pointed out in the, um, the announcements that were being made by the Lord Chamberlain in, in the City of London was the connection with this economic centre, which, of course, when we think about marching out of London and raising a standard at York, perfectly lovely city. However, the economic power was in London and Parliament sort of laughed at King Charles at that point. Well, the, the, the problem with Charles, and obviously this isn't a... Uh, King, 
Charles the First, I should say. <laughs> just to yes, let's just clarify. <laughs> just, let's just clarify. Yeah, let's just clarify that. This isn't obviously a historical um, podcast, but obviously what happened with Charles the First was he ruled without Parliament for 11 years. So that was the day of absolute monarchy. And obviously, once we got rid of Charles I, we had the Cromwell Republic, we decided we didn't like that, and we, we asked for Charles II to come back. But it wasn't actually until the glorious revolution of 1688 when Parliament actually became sovereign. Um, so we, Parliament only sort of really became sovereign in sort of 1688, 1689. Um, but going back to sort of the constitutional conventions, you know, the a lot of the power, if power is even the right word, that the monarch has is often exercised by the government of the day on their behalf. So we have a thing called royal prerogative powers, which resides with the monarchy. They can be abolished, so they can be abolished or restricted by an act of parliament, but by convention it will be prime minister or you know the secretary of state for defense who will exercise those powers on the monarch's behalf so the examples can be things like declarations of war the signing of treaties those are all considered to be powers that the monarchy has but in reality it will be the government or the relevant government minister who will exercise it and the monarchy the, the the true power of the monarchy really is in those kind of unifying moments isn't it when you think about the Second World War and the difference between the British monarchy, which stays in London and, and, and weathers the Blitz with everybody else, and the Norwegian monarchy, who run to Britain, um, and the different ways that they were perceived in, in their respective countries. Um, and it's those kind of moments when, you know, you had the COVID speech, the, the way that Queen Elizabeth snuck out the car of, uh, of Buckingham Palace to celebrate on VE Day uh, back in 1945. Um and then you have things like the, the Jubilees, which is um, pulling pulling people together and, and making kind of public events, especially the Platinum Jubilee following on with COVID, where we'd all been apart. And also, uh, if you look at the wartime, which was really interesting, is the fact that part of Buckingham Palace got bombed. And a lot of people in the East End said, well, when they came to visit us, that felt a lot more connected to us because they'd been through it themselves. And then there was things like they drew lines around the bath so they couldn't have more water than they were supposed to have. There was newsreels publishing the front of the king's ration book and so on, so that they were really sort of experiencing that. And as Michael says, you had European royalty who um, left the country and there was a question about whether the young princesses would be sent to Canada or not, but ultimately the decision was made to move them to Windsor and that was what really embedded the process um, and the relationship into the national psyche. And I think that's stayed ever since. I mean, look like when they have babies now, people sit out on the pavement. Yeah, and I think you're seeing that come through again now, really, in that um, King Charles has said that he is going to make sure that when he, and I've lost the word, coronation, that, that taken in, he's going to have the coronation taken into account, there is a cost of living crisis. Mm. And you've seen it with the royal family, um, the prince and princess of Wales, they've recently announced they're going to move and they're downsizing their households. 
They are downsizing their household. <laughs> Don't knock the equipment. Uh, they are downsizing their household. It's interesting that they sort of, it's, it kind of reflects that thing that we've seen over 70 years of constantly modernizing an institution. And, you know, we often have the discussion about should we have a monarchy, should we not? And, and obviously that's a, that's a question that was asked in Barbados recently and they decided they wanted to be a republic and, and took that direction um, and rightly so decided uh, what the future of their country should be. But it's interesting how when we have that discussion, we don't really think about, well, actually abolishing the monarchy has a, has a constitutional impact, but it also has a, a, a religious impact because the Queen is actually the head of the Church of England, so or, or the King now is the head of the Church of England. So they have this religious role as well of being the, the person at the top of, uh, top of the, the, that religious institution in the way that the Pope is in, in the Catholic Church. So there's this disentangling that would be quite difficult when we talk about removing an institution that has been ingrained in, in the way the country's running for a thousand years. Yeah, I, I think that, that is interesting because, you know, obviously everyone's got their own views uh, about the monarchy, but if we did go down the route of abolishing it, we would have to reform everything. Um, you know, we'd, we'd probably have to overhaul the parliamentary system, uh, we'd probably have to overhaul the electoral system, we'd have to decide do we want a president that we directly elect or would it be similar to the situation that we have now it, you know not saying that because it takes a lot of work we shouldn't do it but it's obviously that there's a lot of implications that would actually come from it and a lot of things that would have to be thought through as to how we do it and there's always the discussion about should we have a written constitution i.e a single authoritative document and if we were to abolish the monarchy that might be the point that we would bring something like that in but we've had chances in the past to reform the electoral system and people haven't voted in favor of doing that so um, it'd be interesting to see what would happen and of course our great ancestors did it and didn't like it so went back to the monarchy <laughs> there's also though all that soft power as well that you've got to think about. So going back to what we were saying earlier about the Queen's long-standing relationship with all the Prime Ministers, and then that sort of eats out into our relationship with other countries. And the thing that we have to question is if we didn't have brand royals, if you like, would we have all that soft power and would people feel that connection? Because people from all over the world are interested in particularly the royal children and royal fashion and various things, and that gives us a connection that maybe sometimes we don't always appreciate until it's shown to us in the form of all the messages and things that we've seen from around the world, and would that come with a reforming system? I don't know. It would be, it's an interesting discussion, isn't it? And everybody has a, a view on, on the, the role of the monarch and, and whether we need one and whether it's a modern thing to have. Um, but it does bring us back around to whether or not we want to monarchy, whether or not we want to abolish it, depending on our point of view. We're still expecting these people to almost shepherd us through this period. And we're, we've got uh, the great-grandchildren attending their great-grandmother's funeral with the TV cameras on them and obviously their, their parents and their grandparents and so forth and so on. And there's almost that element of putting aside your own coping mechanisms and now they're having their their period of grieving and and grieving for a week which 
if we think about our own processes and our own our own experiences, that length of time, just expecting somebody to sort of switch it off and go, okay, right now I'm the king and, and I'm going to do this and I'm going to to, to put that aside and, and perform my role is quite quite a heavy thing to expect of anybody. It is, but I think everybody deals with grief in different ways and sometimes you want to keep busy because if you stop, yeah. it's then going to hit you. But obviously the, the royal household now does have a further seven days of mourning that they can do in, in private. So I think it will really sort of hit home. I think it has hit home, but they've just been going through the motions almost of everything that's needed to be arranged, the meetings, the, the funerals, the services. And now is probably the first time they've stopped in the last two weeks to actually, you know, I don't say grieve properly, but put all their attention onto that. Yeah, and you've got to think of the children there because... That was their, was it, it would have been the first week of school of a new school for them. It was the first day. First day. It was the first day of school when they got the news that she'd passed away. And then you add on to that grief. I think the thing is, is that obviously picking up on Prince Louis, you know, again, he, he's a child and we, again, it's humanising them. You know, we do put them on this pedestal, but actually at the end of the day, Catherine and William are parents dealing with, with a sort of toddler, um, you know, and toddlers, you know, are notorious for, for, for misbehaving. Um, and it's actually, I don't want to say it's quite funny, but there were things on Twitter saying yeah. about, oh, uh, Louis's a liability, they've left him at home. And somebody com- commented, like, uh, thrown alone. <laughs> so him, like, wreaking, wreaking havoc in the palaces while everybody was out and about. Home alone for thrown alone. Yeah, I, exactly. I can see it happening. Yeah. I can see it happening. Um, obviously, one of the interesting things when you're talking about any institution is the amusement that it gives us. And even in this sort of a, a, a pretty bleak time where you're talking about grief and you're talking about loss, there's been some amusing reminders of that, that have been a consequence of that 70 year reign. I mean, my personal favorite is the that. While each monarch is expected to attend one funeral of their, of their predecessor, predecessor. Uh, Queen Elizabeth has managed to attend George the Sixth, Edward the Eighth, and Richard the uh, Third, who was dug up under a car park. <laughs> um, so we find this kind of this, this humour within within grieving. I mean, it's an interesting way that people sort of a coping mechanism to fall back on making jokes. Which that one was particularly amusing to me. Yeah, and I think the thing which I found of interesting and again about this sort of the monarchy is everywhere in our lives and we don't always realize it there was a comment about Heinz tomato sauce yeah and Coleman's mustard will have to suspend printing new labels because of the royal warrant on it and things like that just seem to be a really strange thing that in all this mass of quite serious articles about the constitutional impact and all the rest of it is don't forget the tomato sauce <laughs> was yeah because the the void the warrant was voided as soon as she died yeah because it's the monarch who, who grants them and obviously if the monarch who granted them is no longer with us kind of that the royal charter then goes with that i think they can reapply but it's just whether or not charles will approve it i think 
he probably will because again it'll just be too much change i think for a lot of people to all of a sudden no longer see that and i think he did say that he wanted it to be a period or smooth transition got two years isn't it i think Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean it's interesting that the uh the lawyers um all of the the barristers overnight yeah. Uh, somebody had to be up changing all the websites from, from Queen's Council, from QC to KC. I, I would not want to have been that person. But even like me teaching Foundations of Law, we talk about the monarchy and Parliament. I had to change my lecture, sli- lecture slides um, because I refer to the Queen. And even in law, when we talk R in criminal cases, it's not what, it's Rex now. Mm. So there's so much change in the legal sector. Yeah, and and it's it's so much change overall, isn't it? It's all these little things that we didn't realise were there. You know, the money in our wallets, the symbols on the, the warrants on HP source, post boxes, post boxes, um, stamp, stamps. You've also got the you know the entire sort of the national anthem pervades every sporting occasion, and yeah. we, we've we've at least heard it. You know thousand times by now and it's all of these subtle changes that when we're in this ever-changing world and people are struggling and we've got this this cost of living crisis those it can sometimes be those small changes which really impact people because they're the things that they thought were stable and we almost all had this thought that the the queen was almost immortal to the (laughs) point where i've seen um i've seen cartoon jokes about you know the year 3000 the queen being brought out in her cryo chamber and prince charles still not being the king so there was almost this essential this sort of belief that she would be there forever and and suddenly we've got this period of change where she's on a 96 and she's two days away from where she passes away and she's still appointing a prime minister and you've also got that very definite article of the queen and that's because she she had that long period of reign obviously but she started in a period where people were generally much more reverent to the idea of monarchy than perhaps maybe they will be uh, today. And it's interesting to think, will we have the king in mm. the same way? Because there are kings in other nations. So you've got a king in Spain, you've got a king in the Netherlands, and now we've got King Charles. But similarly, the queen was the queen when there were queens around the world so i think that's really interesting is will our notion of that whole idea yes i think the only um queen now is is the queen of denmark who actually it was in the news yesterday she actually um has tested positive for covid so she was obviously at the funeral the other day and has now tested positive for covid so and i think she's in her 70s or 80s um so yeah europe's only got one queen at present and she's going to be um followed by her son so they will have a king again so again it's really interesting and that was one of the comments in the in the the news coverage i remember it was somebody in their their late teens early 20s which was interesting to see the the breadth and, and demographic of people who were there laying flowers sharing memories writing in in the condolences books it, it covered a huge range of society but it's interesting that they said one of the things they said was we'll, we'll never have a queen again in our lifetime, and of course we've become so used to having a queen that we know that you know we've now got King Charles, the heir apparent is Prince William, and his son um, Prince George would be the next 
in line to the throne. So we've got this very male line that, that's laid out before us. And that kind of takes you right the way back to the beginning with, with Winston Churchill when he made the comment when the Queen came back to the throne of, oh, it's nice to be singing God Save the Queen again. Because he obviously was born in 1874. He's in the Victorian era, so he remembers Queen Victoria. Whereas now we've got people who, who know that they're never going to be talking about a queen again. And she was, she was more of a brand, really, wasn't she? You said queen, and everybody knew who you were talking about. It was either Freddie Mercury or <laughs> Elizabeth Regina. There were more members than Freddie and Queen. <laughs> he was the one who did all the singing. Oh. And wore the crown and the cloak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if you had to pick, Freddie Mercury would always be the person you spoke I to. I know. I mean, Brian May did like do electrical guitar on the top of Buckingham Palace. I mean, I mean Queen did entertain <laughs> the Queen. So, I mean, you've got everything in one location. Is this the point to point out that I'm a bit too young to remember these references? <laughs> So Freddie Mercury was a singer in a band named Queen. I know who Queen are. <laughs> there you go. Brian May was the guitarist. Do you, were you around in 2002 for the, the Golden Jubilee? I was 10. There you go. You would have seen Brian May performing on the roof of Buckingham Palace. But I think he did it for the Platinum Jubilee he, as he well. He did. He repeated it. Yeah. Yeah. Only 10. We're learning, we're learning so much about you each other. You were 10 during the Platinum Jubilee. That was this year. No, the Golden no. Jubilee. Golden Jubilee. It tells us how much we know about each other. Yeah. <laughs> I'd left school. I was I was actually applying for university at the Golden Jubilee. So yeah, I mean But it's interesting, isn't it, when we talk about age and stuff. Um and most of us will always remember where we were when we found out the Queen had died or where we were when the funeral was. And um so Princess Diana was nineteen ninety seven, so mm. I'd have been six and I can remember her funeral her funeral being on the TV. I was at Butlins. And that's sort of envisioned in my head. And there's going to be young people that will have that again, won't they? Yeah. I mean, Princess Diana's funeral was, was an interesting... Again, it was that engagement with grief. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a very... We, we see it to a certain extent here with the Queen, if we've had another a, a big uh, public Outpouring. expression of grief. But we're, here there's almost that natural kind of acceptance of we have a 96 year old lady who's passed away and while no one wants to lose a member of their family it and it's still tragic it's still sad for people it's still it's still hurtful and, and takes a while to to even comprehend when we were talking about princess diana we were talking about a mother who had two young children yeah. and i and think she that herself was, a real impact. was young was she mm. about 36 36 yeah. yeah we had the, the 50th anniversary and i think it was also the circumstances mm. of, yeah. of of the death and also it was recalled back because you saw those children as men processing behind the coffin through that same public roof uh, root, uh, root sorry um, so it's exactly the same image was being brought back but in a totally different circumstance, as mm. you yeah. said, Michael, because you didn't have that layer of tragedy. But it still recalled that whole thing because of that consistency of monarchy and the process of now you do this for a royal funeral and then you do this. And so it was really interesting, I think. And there was obviously divided opinions about should the children be walking behind the, the coffin at, at Diana's funeral? And there was a question of should the children have been at the funeral with, with the Queen, because all eyes of the world are on them, and, and there was a private ceremony taking place later. But one of the the kind of interesting comments that I sort of came across within all of this was, was about the children walking behind the, the hearse in, in 97. And apparently Prince Philip said to them, um, because 
he sat down with the two boys and said to them, well, if I walk, will you walk with me? So he put them in a position where it was like, well, I'll do it if, if would you like to come with me? And then didn't he also say that if you don't, you may, may regret, regret it later? It. Yes, because uh, Prince Philip had to do the same cortege for his sister mm. and her husband and three children as a young man, not as young as William and Harry, but he had his own personal connection to that. And uh, also, if you look at some of the footage, he's talking to William about the different monuments they're going past and the history of them and why they were there, so... And you saw, actually, uh, there was a brief moment where you saw Camilla doing the same uh, on Monday for the two children in the, in, in the actual car with her, where she was pointing out different elements of what was going on. Um, I suppose one question it comes us on to is, does anybody else in the world do pageantry quite like the British? <laughs> I think if there's one thing the British do well, it's the pomp and circumstance. You know, we we do know how to do that, but then we are one of the oldest yeah. <laughs> uh, countries. And, you know, some people said, you know, a lot of the accession council, it seemed quite archaic you know you had like heralds making proclamations on balconies because obviously when we had previous monarchs we didn't have all the technology all the kind of um access to communication it wouldn't have been quite the same though would it a tweet <laughs> or, or like a whatsapp message <laughs> i mean that would have been great wouldn't it uh, the royal palace tweets what's up guys prince signed in now king peace out i mean it does raise an interesting question about communication though doesn't it we see these archaic um traditions because announcing the new king by herald and sending these messages around to the, the different locations in the uk was something that had to be done because Queen Victoria couldn't send an email. Yeah. Um, Queen was the first person to send an email in the UK, not a domestic email, but a military email. There you go. She was ahead of her time. <laughs> but it does, it does kind of show the, the difference in communication across the, f the 70 years that we've been through with, with this singular monarch. And it, it kind of really highlights that internet kind of community and, and, and internet behaviours that we've seen over the previous kind of couple of weeks. Uh, but it, it kind of juxtaposes that with these archaic forms of communication. And I, I guess that it raises the question about the, how we react via these forms of communication. You know, previously, we would have had the announcement and then the best place to discuss the announcement would be at the pub. Yeah. Now it's on Twitter, the news is released, we can discuss it on Twitter, we can say things. And... Not always kind things. No, I, I think the thing to bear in mind at the centre of all of this, and I think we have said it before, is that the, at the heart of this is a family who's grieving, regardless of what your thoughts are on the monarchy, the royal family. At, at the heart of it is a family that's, uh, that is grieving, and I think you know that needs to be remembered when news like this has happened. But again... I think the internet has enhanced the parasocial relationships because I think um, the Prince and Princess of Wales, as they now are, they have, uh, I think, a Twitter page and, and Instagram. Instagram. Um, you know, the Palace or Buckingham Palace themselves yes. ha has all of these mediums as well. So, again, there is that connection, even though you perhaps haven't physically met these people. Do the Corgis have a Twitter account? They probably have a fake one. That would be quite amazing, wouldn't it? Because didn't 
<coughs> Prince George have a fake one as a tiny yeah. baby, and it was like him coming. Yeah, Larry the cat him. has one. Larry the cat's tweets are awesome. Though. They killed a mouse. <laughs> Epic. No, they had to bring in a second cat because Larry stopped like hunting the mice and um, like killing them. I think so. Larry probably said, "I've seen so many prime ministers. <laughs> I'm retiring. <laughs> I'm quitting my cabinet position." I mean, you, I, I mean you know, d- I don't wish any harm on Larry, obviously, but can you imagine what will happen when he passes away? Are we going to have a state funeral for Larry? Yes, there'll be a pageantry with uh, 16 cats, 14 <laughs> mice, and a dashend mixed with a corgi. That would be something to behold. You'll see these little mice trumpeting through Parliament Square, parading towards uh, Number 10 Downing Street. I mean, it, but it is it is interesting, the, the change in communications and the change in the way we do communicate. And uh, I guess, Laura HBO, I want to come to you because this is your specialist topic what how do we kind of grapple with that change in communication and the way people behave when we're no longer face to face and there's that element of freedom to to say things and to put it out there into the the ether i think it's difficult and i think the last couple of weeks has shown that because whether you want to abolish the monarchy or whether you were a huge fan of the monarchy if i can put it that way everyone's sort of entitled to that opinion it's the way it's sort of expressed and I think it sort of goes back to this idea of well at the end of the day she was still a human being her family was still human um and you know there are questions about her responsibility in some aspects of what's happened in the country that she was head of state but ultimately for me in particular, I think two wrongs don't necessarily make a right and that you can't change anything. You can accept, you you know, you it's your right not to feel sorry that she's passed away, but you need to be wary of how you sort of express that. And that was something I was thinking about with the sort of, you know, the right to be offended and the mm. right to offend because there was video i don't know if everybody's seen it of a lady i think in scotland with a chip shop who was spraying champagne and being very celebrating about that so on the one hand you've got an expression like that which you might be able to see the distaste in that but then you've got the issue that happened in scotland with people shouting at the procession yeah but then 15 years ago, that woman on the chip shop spraying champagne, most people have never even known about it. Yeah. So it is, isn't it? How would we balance those things? Because like you say, that social media presence, now everybody can see her. Yeah, but we always highlight the bad. And I think that's one of the things of social media. It's, we see it as an evil. And it does have a dark side. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But there's also a place for it. And I think COVID showed that Mm -hmm. where there will have been people who will have not spoken or seen another human being for months. And it allowed them to connect. Um, You see it with Sarah Millican on Christmas Day where she runs a campaign on Twitter so that people could connect because not everyone's with their family on Christmas Day. so, yeah, it sort of does have that darker side, but you've got to remember that it's a glimpse of what's going mm. on. And it's like anything, the bad will always be at the forefront and, you know, the good seems to go back in the background and we forget about that. Well, that's it. It's because 
good news doesn't sell newspapers Absolutely. or result in clickbait exactly. <laughs> as it as it now um now is but just to kind of pick up on what abby was saying about the sort of freedom of speech i think what a lot of people don't realize is that it's not an absolute yeah. right you don't have an absolute right to freedom of expression it has to be balanced against other rights and i think what we've kind of been seeing reporting is the police have been using their very wide discretionary power of breach of the peace yeah. to apprehend people who are perhaps protesting the monarchy during these solemn events and the thing is is that with breach of the peace it is very wide it is very discretionary covers everything it covers everything but if you're in a place where there are a big group of people mourning somebody the idea of breach of the peace is that if there is a fear of immediate violence occurring that could possibly happen if you're expressing a view that goes against the majority of people that are there so it's more of a safety issue rather than restricting <coughs> speech there's nothing necessarily wrong with what people were saying and there was no law against it it was more was there kind of a moral ambiguity about being respectful in that environment and in those situations and i think we've we've seen it before haven't we that we've we've had protests at the funerals of soldiers and we've seen them in in mm. america and we would we usually there's a there's a sense of well that's not appropriate so if we think it's not appropriate to to protest at the funeral of a soldier is it really is it is it appropriate to protest at the head of state's funeral? But then you get into all of those questions, don't you? Like, it, in our regime where you do have the ability to pro protest and there's democracy and all of those things, we have the luxury of making that, that point of, is it appropriate? However, I think if we imagine that we were in a different kind of regime, then those elements of protest, and particularly the use of social media, yeah. thinking about Arab Spring and all different things, take on a different a different role and a different meaning. And also, I've been thinking about that a lot, actually, with a lot of this seemingly arcane pageantry. We are in quite a privileged to position to say, oh, isn't it nice everybody's in pretty costumes and playing with trumpets? Because we're actually in a position where that is window dressing yes. yeah. in the true point. It's not like you will have this and you will put up with it and you're not allowed to say anything about it. Yeah, absolutely. And sort of political speech or, or you know, speech that is crit critical of, of the state is one of one of the things that they do. The courts have said, you know, does require the utmost protection. But again, you know, there is this moral argument of time and place when it's appropriate. But also if you've got a lot of people grieving, they're not going to take kindly to you. <laughs> shouting obscenities or you know sort of criticizing <coughs> the person who's but died. again if you look at different regimes that grief can still be created i mean if you look at north korea for mm. example every time you go into the capital city of north korea people will go and visit the statues of the previous leaders and in that situation they might have the same tinderbox mm. environment of people performing grief because that's required by the regime. Yeah. But it's that idea, isn't it, that in our regime where we are, that would be could be a trigger for dangerous contact, um, 
conduct to the individuals because of the heightened emotions and everything else. But if you are in a different regime, having the whole sort of everybody there, that might be your one time to say, no, this shouldn't happen. Yeah, absolutely. Again, you know, because the point of of an effective protest yeah. <laughs> is that you can you can get your points across and you know sometimes it, it can be in those environments but I think it's yeah we, we are very fortunate that we do live in a country that does allow us to express sentiments against the head of state against the government whatever it might be and of course you've got a head of state who's a figurehead who's recognizable around the world who's overseen 70 years of de-imperialization, decolonization. So there will be plenty of, and it's, and it's worth recognizing that there's, the Queen's overseen good things and bad things. And of course, the, the position of the monarchy politically in the UK is that the, the parliaments and governments are responsible for, for policy <coughs> decisions. But there's a lot of people who will you know, justifiably feel a degree of resentment or, or sometimes anger towards the figurehead of a country that that's, has damaged through its colonization, their own soil, their own their own nation, their own identity. The other thing which I've been thinking about as well with this is particularly, I would say, in the last sort of 10 years, the Queen has been like the nation's grandmother. And when she came to the throne, she was the young group, bereaved daughter and young wife and mother, and then she was, you know, her family were growing and she was doing all of that. Now, King Charles is at a very specific point in his life cycle but he hasn't got that sort of emotional attachment from everybody going into his you know sort of later years as being king so I think that's going to be really interesting to see whether some of that sort of critical dialogue was tempered by the queen's positioning as the nation's young daughter through to the nation's young mother through to everything else through to the nation's grandmother and I think it's going to be really interesting because some of the narrative around maybe uh, the prince and princess of Wales taking over more senior positions more quickly seems to be based around oh they're a young family they, they're more reflective of what's going on and I think that's really interesting. I think it's this thing that we have this ancient institution of monarchy but at the same time it needs to modernize and you know a lot of commentators have come out and said that the the queen was very good at respecting the heritage respecting the history but also modernizing the institution um and i think that is the thing but you know again charles is what 73 74 most of us will be retired (laughs) by that age and the queen herself was 96 and working up until the day she sadly passed away so you know a lot of us have some of us have the luxury of retiring <laughs> before we're 70, 73, and he's now got to obviously keep on working. <laughs> and I think some of the language that was used was really interesting in that they talk about a family of nations. It wasn't, it wasn't they talk about realms and territories because it's part of the, the ancient speech that's there. But they were very much talking about this family of nations and the Commonwealth and bringing people together. And that's kind of an interesting dialogue, an interesting position to, to sort of be adopting, of trying to foster, from my reading of it and my understanding of the language you're using, to try and bring people together. And obviously the Commonwealth was a, a legacy for the Queen. It was very important for her. 
and nations that were not even former colonies have joined it to be part of this this collective of, of nations. So are we looking at kind of using this opportunity for the, through the royal family and, and through some of the things they're saying? Are we looking at the opportunity to bring people together? Is that what you, you see the future being in this talk of families and family of nations? I'd like to think so. I, I really would like to think so. And I think the coming together and the grief would indicate that. But whether that sort of maintains throughout, I think, is something we can't be too confident of yet. But I think certain national events, if things stay the same, might bring people back. So weddings and babies and all of those things, as they do in sort of individual families. So really we need more royals to get married and more royals to have babies. <laughs> yes, everybody gets very happy when that happens. I mean, it must be quite a pressure though, isn't it? If, if, if you've just had a baby and you know that there's a million photographers waiting outside and you've then got to go and, and look almost a million dollars when you've you've just had you know, a 20, 23-hour labour, whatever it may be. Um, even in those situations, the, the, we talk about the, the grief and the difficulty that the family will be having in the public eye at the minute, but even something like having a child, there's a microscope on you. I was going to say, I think the paparazzi were trying to catch uh, Prince William out when he was fitting the car seat. Yeah. <laughs> they all cheered, didn't they, when he got it? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, <coughs> the Duchess of Cambridge, as she was then, she did a podcast with Giovanna Fletcher. Yeah, she did. And she said how sort of much she was glad that she was able to do that because she felt like privilege that everybody wanted to share in the happy arrival of George and she was really relieved and she was glad that everybody wanted to share in that but then you had people like Kira Knightley uh, causing a bit of a stir because they said oh how unfair that was for her to do that and it isn't until you think about it well maybe that was really unfair yeah because it sort of pictured this is what you should look like after birth when actually I keep hitting the microphone um, in reality, that's not most people's experience. No, you say that, but then again, we, we do see it to some extent with celebrities, isn't it? It's like, oh, um, they've lost all the baby weight. Yeah, within, they bounce back. Yeah, or they've hid themselves away, they've hired a personal trainer mm -hmm. and this, that and the other. And obviously they're in the position where they can potentially do that. Um, and But then again, it may make a person who doesn't have access to those services, to those facilities, to be able to, you know, replicate that. But I think it's because we do put these people on a pedestal and they are, as a result, under the microscope of the media and things will be published about them that then perhaps does affect a person's self-esteem and their own worth. And it's interesting how... Royal, we, we start this conversation about royalty, and royalty obviously was, was an, a very, very early form of celebrity. You would have all the nobles wanted to be like the royals. If, if, if blue was in at court, everybody would be wearing blue. But we now have royalties become almost this common parlance for, for people who are big in their industry. So we talk about people like Jay-Z and Beyonce and their, their pop royalty or rap royalty. We talk about Britney Spears or Madonna, and they're the queen of pop and the princess of pop and all of these things. So the idea of... of celebrity is almost in, to some extent merges with that idea of royalty because we perceive people as <coughs> reaching yeah. these heights and becoming almost oh definitely and like going back to the time of when blue was in 
everybody wore blue. Well, we see that now, don't we? Um, the Princess of Wales engagement dress, for example, sold out in like 20 minutes because now people have Google and there are dedicated sites. Yeah. What Kate wore, Meghan's mirror, all of those things. Kate pushes a certain buggy. Everybody wants that buggy. Is there genuinely a website called What Kate Wore? Yep, What wow. Kate Wore and wow. Megan's Mirror. And their job is to look at photographs and find where those things are, or as close as possible, dupes. Also, interestingly, Kate went on honeymoon in a Zara dress, which again, everybody went crazy for. And her engagement pictures, she wore a whistles blouse, which whistles re-released in celebration of the wedding. So that's still happening. It mm. might not be blue is in at court now, but it's you can go to Zara and you can buy that and, thing. And that taps into the kind of uh, wider thing, isn't it, with, with fans and, and people who, who are passionate about certain things. They will buy merchandise. And this is just another way of merchandising. They wore this particular dress. This, it, was, it was fashionable. And, of course, even down to baby names. Uh, <laughs> baby names, you know, George. This, George shot up the rankings as soon as there was a Prince, Prince George. Um, and it, so the, there's this influence on, on kind of other people that, that <coughs> whether you're a celebrity or you're a royal, you exert. And there was that long-running joke in Keeping Up Appearances. I don't know if anybody... Yes, Mrs. Bouquet. Laura probably young. <laughs> it was it was about a woman who lived in a very very ordinary place, but instead of being called Mrs. Bucket, she always pronounced it Mrs. Bouquet. She was very uh, like la di da. Yes, presenting but herself as a perhaps a, a higher mm. class. And the long running joke was that all the breakfast cereals had to have a crest on the packet, and the cereal was enjoyed by members of the royal family, and that was back in the eighties and nineties, and so. It is definitely something that is ongoing and probably... And look at Prince... Well, King Charles, have to get used to saying that with his Dutchy original biscuits. You go into Waitrose, you buy those biscuits. And of, and of course, Prince William at his wedding didn't like fruit cake, so they had a chocolate biscuit cake, which I think apparently it, the Queen enjoyed a slice of with her tea regularly. I think it was like mashed up bourbon. Yeah, it was mashed up bourbons. In buttercream. It just sounded amazing. Yeah, we had a go at making it, and believe me, it's the it's it's the messiest thing to try and make. Which kind of we we talk about the royals. One thing we can't ignore is the obviously the most famous elements of the royal family, animals. Which I know Laura is looking across the table, going, "Oh, I hate animals." So this is going to be a really interesting. I don't hate animals. That's not really something you want to broadcast. I do. I want to broadcast that. I don't hate animals. You just you just have a, a a healthy distance from them. I prefer humans. Okay, um, animals and children tell the truth; they never lie. Said wise man once. <laughs> Is um, that you? Are you the wise man? <laughs> I am very wise. Um, humble too. Humble. You're very humble. Very humble. Um, obviously, the corgis took a starring role in the the little skit that was done for the the Olympics, which is possibly the the best thing the Queen ever did. I think some people would say the Paddington I skit. Pa Paddington, Paddington. Paddington's a close second for there me. There was a but corgi right at the beginning. There's, of a, that. there's a corgi right at the beginning, and she ad libbed. She didn't actually. She was immediately meant to say, "Good evening, Mr. Bond." So, but she deliberately didn't and yeah. waited, and and it was like that's that's even it made it even better and even funnier. Um, I still like the fact that Boris Johnson stood up in Parliament and said he had to explain to another head of state that the Queen hadn't jumped out of a helicopter and parachuted into, <laughs> into the Olympic the Stadium. Stadium. Um, but they have an in, they kind of have this this long history this connection to 
animals, don't we? we got, the queen was into her horses. We had Emma the horse was pony. Present. She was a was pony. A pony. A fell pony. pony. Yeah, fell pony. Um, and we had obviously the corgis and the doggies. And one of the first pictures of the queen with her father was the queen on the back of a pony. And it was painted by somebody quite recently. And I don't think the Queen was terribly keen on the painting because she saw the painting, didn't know who it was supposed to be, and said, I don't remember the horse being blue or something like that. <laughs> so you do have these things that tie you together. And, of course, the corgi, she was given a corgi for one of her birthdays as a young girl, and they sort of became her heraldic animal, if you like. Yeah, and I think it, I think it was somebody on the coverage should say, you know, the animals just took her as a person. They didn't know she was the queen. Yeah. It was that she could kind of be herself, and the animals didn't care that she was, you know, who she was. They just kind of took her as she was, and it. I suppose it was that relaxing sort of persona. She could just be. <coughs> whoever she wanted to be rather than mom your majesty uh, and having to follow all these rules and protocol that they have in place and that was true for queen victoria as well when she had quite a secluded childhood for various historical reasons she had a, a spaniel called dash and there was even record in her diary at the time that she took time out of the coronation festivities to bath the spaniel because that's something she'd always done and her prime minister at the time remarked and said how unusual that a queen would bath her own dog and that connection remained all through her life and of, and of course the queen was out riding her horses until um, kind of very very late in life i like to imagine that after a long meeting with a said prime minister that she went and ranted and raved to the corgis, whereas today would rant and rave on Twitter. <laughs> I think ranting and raving to the corgis has more decorum <laughs> to it. The corgis would have tilted their head, looked at them, and just gone woof. But again, there is a, a really nice story, and I think that is the thing: is that there's a lot of things that we didn't necessarily know or hear about until she's sadly passed away. Um, but I think this was in a book by a, a veteran of. Uh, one of the Afghanistan or Iraq wars, he was invited to lunch um, and he was suffering from PTSD because of obviously what he'd gone through and the Queen was trying to talk to him but he was struggling, you know, quite badly. So she actually got the... Um, uh, the, the um, the, the staff to bring the corgis in and she gave him some biscuits to feed the corgis and that put him very much... At ease because it was again he was interacting with the corgis he was stroking them he was feeding them so it sort of assisted him in feeling a bit more comfortable in that environment and sort of calming him down and it's the small things isn't it because it shows us that the humans behind the imagery we often see the the big state things the traveling around the world the obviously visiting hundreds of countries over her lifetime. But we don't see the human elements very much. And it's the same for, for, for politicians or even to some extent, probably a lesser extent, some celebrities, because obviously we now get such an insight into people that, that in some respects the royal family and, and Number 10 Downing Street are a bit unusual in that we don't get a lot of access. A lot of what we get is through the news, through the yeah. imagery, whereas we, you know, we can turn on MTV and probably see somebody's house 
Well, <coughs> they've always had that tension, though, haven't they, in the royal family, in that the Queen always said, I have to be seen to be believed, and that's why she always wore black colours, and they were always very striking, and even the hearse was illuminated. But then also, when they were considering what are we going to televise, what are we going to put on the radio, I believe it was Queen Mary, so the Queen's grandmother, said, you don't want to let too much light in on the magic, because that's when people start to see the realities and the sort of shadows and things. And we've seen that a little bit, haven't we? Particularly in the 90s with the Wales's marriage breakdown, we did start to see that and, of course, other family conflicts. But then we had this big change, as we were talking about with the beginning, with the funeral, that we all saw things that had never been out for public consumption. So it is a really tight balancing act for them, I think. Because if we did start to see, I don't know, the or the pantry or whatever that would really take off some of that guilt and sheen but then we're also saying you've got to be transparent you've got to be accountable mm. so we've got to question what is it we want to see and what is what do we not want to see and i do think there's an element of you don't want to see how the sausage gets made <laughs> <laughs> there is there is an element of don't let them see behind the curtain don't let them see the man behind the curtain or the the woman behind the curtain and there's certainly it's interesting to compare the access that we get. They obviously have done documentaries and did release some of the, f the early footage. I think the Queen, the Queen actually wanted the, the documentary to be buried and never see the light of day because I think when it was originally broadcast, I think it, in the more. 60s, I think it was, there was quite a bit of bad backlash mm. uh, towards it. Again, I think it was because of the privilege mm. and the luxuries that they enjoy compared to and obviously the, the 60s were, was rock and roll and freedom and equality was very much becoming a big thing we had a, a lot of changes and, and a drive from from a lot of kind of early you know of mid 20th century feminist movements that were, were changing the the shape of the world and again it was interesting because that was when you started to see people like celebrity hairdressers emerging who would have been considered like not socially right for those circles, but they were suddenly making a lot of money and gaining a lot of precedence and partying with Princess Margaret and the Rolling Stones and marrying into the aristocracy and sort of really shaking things up. And there was a documentary with Lord Litchfield, the famous photographer, uh, and he was saying he felt as an aristocrat and very closely connected to the Queen that he suddenly felt I was not the important person in the room. Somebody wanted to talk to the tailor for the Beatles or somebody wanted to talk to the guy who cuts the hair of whoever it might be. And again, if you look at Mustique, which still has a big connection to the royals, the guy who owns the bar on Mustique, Basil, he was on a documentary and he said, I am a barman on Mustique and I got invited to William and Kate's wedding. Now, in the 1960s, when he first started his bar, he said, Princess Margaret would never have invited me anywhere. But that fluidity has happened. And Lady Glen Connor, who was, whose husband owns Mustique, said, actually, Basil made more money than any of us because he was the route to the liquor and the parties and the good time. So it's, we have really seen that sort of shift in who gets invited and who's considered mm. the top. One of the interesting things that was 
part of the very sort of the latter stages of the funeral when they they get to St George's Chapel is when they remove the symbols from the the coffin and, and in a sense unmake the identity of the queen and i think it it's a really interesting kind of moment where you remove what is essentially the the most recognizable elements the crown the scepter of this individual as as a, as a figurehead and it sort of makes us think about what what is identity what is a person's identity and how multifaceted that is but from a national perspective that person has been removed from from the spotlight and in a very symbolic and ceremonial way it's a very deliberate kind of unmaking of this person's identity i think it's just that th those symbols were what we associated with the, the queen you know the imperial state crown she would wear to the state opening of parliament um, and it's probably the image that most people are most familiar with you know the scepter and the orb people might have seen but the thing that she was always kind of seen wearing at the big pageantry events was the imperial state crown and you know we're, we're now likely to see king charles the, the third uh, wearing that adjusted of course <laughs> to take into account any changes but it's almost ubiquitous isn't it that you can't think of the queen without thinking of those symbols but those symbols will still be there it would just be a different person who will be wielding them also i think that was a very strong message as well about even though the queen or the monarch is very intertwined with the running of our state machinery and state uh, sort of institutions that symbolic removal of the thing that intertwined them is very sort of reassuring but also a definite symbol of there is a separation between the person and the role and what it means for you as a population and their figurehead role and i think that that was really came home to me in that moment because i almost felt a sense of relief for her like oh crown's off i'm now just who i was and i'm going to be with my family and my husband again but i think that was a really interesting visual representation of the things that you were talking to us about laura about the role of one thing and another do we think as a final thought do we think we will see a monarchy who runs their business quite like certain presidents have where it's by Twitter, do you think we'll ever reach that stage? God, I hope not. In the next 70 years? I, I no. don't think we will. Like I say, I think they've obviously got all these official Twitter pages, Instagram, the Palace website, things like that. And I think to some extent it's tightly controlled. I think there's a lot of yeah. rules and protocol. I mean, I know that everyone says that Prince Louis is a bit of... <laughs> I like to think that they've all got a finster out there that we just don't know about. That's what I like to think. But they've all got a pseudonym on, like... Fake that would be quite stuff. amazing, wouldn't it, if, we, if if somebody ever gets outed as, yes, actually, you know, Dark Horse underscore 69 is in reality Prince William. <laughs> <laughs> it would be amazing, wouldn't it? It's been trolling Boris Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't think we'd see something like that. I think, again, it's that fine balance between 
the heritage and the modernization i think they have embraced modernizing like they are on twitter they are on instagram whatever it might be but they're not necessarily given free reign and again i suppose it goes back to the stiff upper lip british way and also the monarchy having to portray a degree of neutrality and say or do nothing overt so no tiktok rapping videos no, we only say it's save that for politicians. I mean, I'm impressed that anybody would willingly do that. Um, I'm not even sure what TikTok is. I'm completely confused by it. Well, the it. royal family has shown that they are willing to engage in sketches. You know, the, yeah. the, the Queen did the James Bond one. She did the one with Paddington. She did one with um, Harry and the Obamas. So there is there is hilarity and levity uh, but again i think it's under very Unless specific we forget it's a knockout when they all ran around in silly costumes at alton towers not a million miles away um <coughs> yeah yeah and uh princess anne was on a question of sport uh zara phillips has obviously won olympic medals so we've seen something but we're not gonna we, we don't think we'll see the 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 royalty by Twitter. And didn't Prince William have a curry with Peter Crouch for Radio 1, I think, and they were talking about terrible presents that they bought for their wives and things like that. I think there is a bit more showing of the human side, Mm. and maybe that's what we'll get from the events in recent weeks, is because they've shown more that they are human, that humanity there, that maybe that's the way forward, that they realise that actually we need to show that we are vulnerable ourselves. And that's sort of a brave thing to do if you're anybody, isn't it? Mm. Show show that vulnerability because we're always, it's always in our nature to, to present to this solid wall of, of we are quite capable individuals and nothing's going wrong. And and it sort of brings us from, from the royal family and, and a very big institution, very high profile people, all the way down to the students that come through the doors at university who... Who Prince William and and um, and Catherine, you know, the Prince of Prince, Princess of Wales, were at one point um, starting, or of course, in different circumstances with a different background, but still starting the same journey that that many people are going to start or have started in in the in the September itself. And yeah. if I remember correctly, I think Prince William was on the verge of dropping out or changing courses, and I think it was he was. Ca- I think it was Catherine who persuaded him to stay at university but to, to switch the course. So again, he's gone through a similar um, experience that perhaps some students do. You know, they may get overwhelmed or they may find that the course they've chosen isn't the course for them. So again, it, it does give us that relatable nature of the royal family, you know, at the end of the day. They are like us in the sense that they're humans and they can experience the same emotions, but equally they are perhaps slightly apart from Imagine us. if Prince George came to Kiel. I mean, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? It would be hilarious. That would be so good. Imagine <laughs> presenting Prince George with a cheese oatcake. Imagine <laughs> teaching constitutional law <laughs> to the future king. I, I'm pretty sure they're schooled in that from quite an early age. <laughs> They'll take the lectures for do you, us. Do you expect that the first words they say are constitutional monarchy? <laughs> I, c- I can see that. I can see that being mom, constitutional monarchy quite quickly. 
Um, Although there was that really sweet bit at the funeral where a lip reader saw Charlotte saying to George, when they get to the car, you have to bow. So Yes, reminding, behind every uh, young lad is a sister who knows what they're doing. I think George is older than Charlotte, so... Yes, yeah, but clearly it shows the the maturity and aptitude of Charlotte to negotiate pageantry of the royal family well she was also the ones that told the press they weren't invited to louisa baptism when they were walking into the uh, chapel (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's a fairly powerful statement and there is a mic drop and and i feel at that point it's a good opportunity as the equipment disintegrates to um turn around and say this has been chocolate lure and dinosaurs we will be engaging in chocolate eating at some point in the next 24 hours. Uh, and we will be back with another exciting discussion with some students next time when they return. Uh, and we will reveal all at a later stage. So it raises me to say thank you to Laura and Laura and Abby. And it's goodbye from me, goodbye from them. And it's goodbye from him. 